You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. Today's episode is episode three of our four-part series on ESG. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, we would encourage you to start there, especially the most recent episode on environmental, as this episode picks up where we left off and takes a deeper dive into the E. However, we will spend more time in this episode talking through the reporting considerations of the environmental component, especially now that the SEC has released a proposal. We hope you enjoy the episode and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage Richter, and I am joined by my co-host, the king of the codification, Adam Olson. And today's very special occasion is a reunion between past friends, Robbie and Caroline, who taught us Cecil in one of our very first episodes. Welcome back, y'all. Thank you. Our our first guest ever, actually, I think. I think you're right. Yeah. It's a a historic day. It is. It is. (laughs) So last time you were here, I asked you if the acronym Cecil made you think of anything. So I think that's only fair if we try again with ESG. Does anything come to mind when you hear this acronym repeated over and over? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Putting me on the spot. Uh, The first thing that comes to my mind is environmental, social, and governance. So um, (sighs) I don't know if that's good or bad. (laughs) It's not bad. It's just lame. (laughs) (laughs) It's earth-saving grace. How about that? (laughs) I like that one, Adam. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with Adam. Sorry, Robbie. <laughs> All right, well, let's get down to business. Uh, last time in our previous environmental episode, we talked about the different types of environmental and climate-related issues and strategies that are top of mind today. We hit on the how a company thinks through scopes one, two, and three of emissions. And today we're kind of going to shift to the disclosure and reporting side of these matters. I think a natural starting point would be some of the recent news we hinted at in our introduction episode about the SEC's latest proposal on climate-related disclosures. So before we get into the specifics of the proposal, can one of you maybe give a little background around how the SEC got to where it is today on these climate-related disclosures? Yeah, sure. So uh, we really started seeing more attention given by the SEC as it relates to climate disclosures going back uh, just a little over a year ago. So uh, in February of 2021, then acting SEC Chair Allison Heron-Lee released a statement that directed the SEC to increase focus on climate-related disclosures in public company filings. Uh, The statement also announced a new enforcement task force that specifically would focus on climate and ESG issues. Uh, And then uh, a short month later, the SEC then requested public input on climate-related disclosures to help evaluate current rules. The comment period associated with that request closed last summer, uh, and it received a significant amount of attention. Uh, In fact, there were over 500 comment letters, um, so a significant number provided to the SEC, uh, and a large majority of those were in support of the disclosures. In the fall of 2021, the SEC staff released a sample letter indicating extensive questioning of the quality of public companies' climate disclosures. Comment letters were sent to certain registrants with comments largely based on the sample letter. 
Subsequently, the SEC staff has sent follow-up letters, which included requests for support for materiality assessments. Uh, and to date, the related correspondence with nearly 30 registrants, uh, and that total, totaling around 160 comments across those 30 registrants, has been made public. So it's available for anyone to go and see. All of these were clear indications the SEC was moving towards standardizing the requirements around climate-related disclosures uh, and other mat related matters and filings. Uh, throughout this period, based on all of this evidence and all of these indications, the public was certainly anticipating the release of the proposed rules around climate disclosures. And if we then fast forward to just a short year after the initial directive to increase focus on climate disclosures, the proposed rules were just issued for public comment in March 2022. So does the proposal draw on any existing practices or frameworks that were already used by companies before the SEC weighed in? It does, uh, which is very helpful for those who were already moving forward with some aspects of ESG reporting. The proposal draws on the framework developed by the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, the TCFD, and the Greenhouse Gas Protocol that are already starting to be used around the world. Uh, so a huge help to organizations that were already along that path. Uh, registrants would be required to disclose information about climate-related risks that have or are reasonably likely to have material impacts to their business or financial statements. Uh, one interesting thing about the proposal is that it appears to also apply to companies, including emerging growth companies, that are entering the U.S. capital markets for the first time. Uh, for example, by an IPO or as an acquisition target of public companies. It also does not provide relief for recently acquired companies, which means registrants would need to include those operations in their disclosures upon consolidation. So... As with any proposed rule, you know, it's open for comment. There might be some changes coming down the road, but as it stands right now, as we're recording this in March of 2022, what are some of the key disclosure types and where are they expected to be disclosed in a filing? So the disclosure requirements in the proposed rule can really be broken into three key buckets. So <clears throat> the first bucket would require disclosure in the financial statements for specific climate-related financial metrics. Um, the second bucket would require disclosure in a section separate from the financial statements in the filing and would relate to GHG emissions. And then the third bucket would also require disclosure in a section separate from the financial statements and relate to other various climate-based disclosures. So these include things around governance and risk management processes, uh, targets or goals established by the company and others. So, you know, kind of, you know, maybe diving into those types of disclosures a bit more, can you maybe talk about why they kind of came up with these broad three categories? Like what were they looking to achieve by requiring these different types of disclosures? For the specific climate-related financial metrics, the intent behind the disclosures was really to provide a picture of the financial impact that climate-related risks and opportunities have on the financial statements themselves. And so they'll require a new footnote in the financial statements and focus on financial impact metrics, um, expenditure metrics, and estimates and assumptions that are made. So each new metric that would get disclosed would also require language for how that metric was derived, similar to, um, you know, an, a financial estimate. Now that makes sense. Um, and I know on the greenhouse gas emissions proposed disclosures, you know, they're obviously a significant element of, of the proposed rule by the SEC. 
did they provide any guidance on maybe the method for how you would calculate um, those amounts to disclose? Um, is there any like guidance around preparation of those disclosures? Yep, yep. So as, as we alluded to earlier, um, in practice, the most common reference point for the calculation of GHG emissions is the guidance of the greenhouse gas protocol or the GHG protocol. Um, this is acknowledged in the proposed rule, um, which provides definitions that essentially mirror those in the GHG protocol. So the GHG protocol provides methodologies to um, measure emissions, but they're not required to be used. So the SEC really wanted to provide some flexibility and um, in management measurement methods, <laughs> management me measurement methods that um, can be used. Uh, and those may evolve over time as well. Okay. Well, that's helpful to at least know that there's at least some direction and similarities with what companies may have already been seeing. You know, when I think about like the emission disclosures, you know, there's there's complexity obviously involved in getting the information, preparing those and pulling all that together. You know, one thing, you know, investors may be concerned about is just the reliability of what ultimately gets disclosed. So how did the SEC intend within its proposed rule for those, you know, greenhouse gas emission disclosures to be factual, accurate, reliable to users of the financials? As part of the proposed rule, the GHG disclosures for scope one and scope two emissions uh, would be subject to a level of assurance. Uh, and the requirement is under the proposed rule is phased in depending on the registrant's filer status and the level of assurance uh, would also be phased in over time. So moving, starting with limited and then reasonable assurance being phased in. Yeah, no, that, that's helpful to hear that. Obviously, there's going to be some attestation element to the proposed rule itself. And, and maybe just for our listeners to understand, you know, I think we're all familiar with audit concepts and review concepts, but maybe not as much under the attest standards. Um, so just to like pair, you know, compare and contrast, I guess, rather between limited and reasonable assurance. So limited, you know, assurance under the attestation standards is essentially just expressing a conclusion about whether there are any material modifications that should be made to any metrics. Um, and so you can kind of think about this, you know, by analogy to the level of assurance you might get from someone performing review procedures over financial statements. And then a higher level of assurance is obviously reasonable assurance. And that's really an opinion on the matter itself. And so for um, financial statement users, we're all familiar with an audit. And so reasonable assurance is, you know, can be viewed as an equivalent to uh, an audit opinion as well. Um, did the rule itself actually talk about who would perform these types of engagements that would provide this level of assurance over the disclosures or maybe what professional standards the, you know, the assurance level would, would be provided under? Yeah, so I'll take the second piece first. So the proposed rule notes that any publicly available attestation standards would be acceptable. For example, the AICPA's attestation standards um, are ones that are likely to be used. Um, the provider of the attestation would need to be a party that has the relevant experience and competency in the space and clearly need to be independent of the registrant and its affiliates. So uh, with that said, the provider under the proposal would not have to be a registered public accounting firm, um, but, but they may be as well. Okay, that's helpful. Um, so what about scope three admissions? I don't think we heard a lot about requirements around those. Are there any requirements for the scope three emissions to also have a level of assurance? I know scope three is obviously some of the more 
challenging and complex ones to really get your hands around. Yeah, that's right. And uh, in the current proposal, no. Uh, in fact, uh, scope three disclosures would only be required by the registrant if material uh, or if the registrant included a scope three GHG reduction target or goal. Small reporting companies, so SRCs, are exempt from scope three disclosures altogether uh, in addition to that. And so you mentioned the word, if it's material, did they speak at all about how materiality is viewed um, as it relates to um, these types of disclosures? Is there any thresholds or you know qualitative, quantitative factors that need to be considered when thinking about materiality? The proposal includes bright line materiality thresholds for metrics that would be disclosed in the financial statements. The SEC indicated that materiality for purposes of the proposed reporting and disclosure rules would be viewed consistently with the interpretation of materiality set out in the securities laws. This means information is material when there is a substantial likelihood that a reasonable investor would consider it important in making an investment decision, or if omitted, it would have significantly altered the total mix of information made available. Registrants would need to thoroughly and objectively evaluate um, the total mix of information, considering all relevant facts and circumstances surrounding any climate-related risk, including both quantitative and qualitative factors, uh, to determine whether the climate-related risk is material. There are some broad strokes there with those words. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of judgment again, I think. No, you know, not a lot of specificity. I'm sure we'll, we'll watch that one closely as the comment period comes to a close later this year, um, spring of 2022. But for now, let's switch to those maybe preparing disclosures today under existing frameworks or guidelines. Can you give us an introduction to different units of measurement commonly used out there around emissions and what each of them actually means? Yep. When we talk about greenhouse gas emissions, uh, you typically hear the term carbon dioxide equivalents or CO2E. So under the GHG protocol, companies are actually required to disclose emissions broken out separately into the six Kyoto Protocol greenhouse gases. But when you present and aggregate the total greenhouse gas emissions, companies need to combine the various greenhouse gases into equivalent units of carbon dioxide. And this is based on what's called the global warming potential. So each greenhouse gas has a standard global warming potential as a multiplier of CO2, which allows companies to combine and compare the various greenhouse gases based on their degree of harm to the atmosphere. So, for example, the global warming potential for methane is 25. So the emissions of 1 million metric tons of methane is equal to 25 million metric tons of CO2. So we don't want to get too technical, but we just wanted to give a sense for what CO2E or CO2 equivalents are in the context of actually reporting GHG emissions. So what methodologies are used in practice to calculate and disclose those metrics? As you can imagine, there's multiple methodologies uh, used in practice. So companies have flexibility in how they calculate emissions because each company is going to have specific operational considerations or um, limitations from what data is available. So um, generally speaking, though, GHG emissions can be calculated by directly measuring the activity or the consumption of a particular energy source and then multiplying that activity by um, an emission factor. So emission factors are essentially averages that are based on extensive data sets in any particular region. And um, they're published by 
various governmental and non-governmental environmental agencies. Um, so the U.S. EPA is a good example, um, International Energy Agency, all of which publish these emission factors. So in a really um, simplified example, a company could calculate its GHG emissions from gasoline used in a company-owned vehicle by taking the annual gasoline consumption in a particular unit of measure um, and then multiply that consumption by a published emission factor for gasoline. Again, really simple. Um, com some companies may have a more sophisticated measurement capability and they're able to directly measure the GHG emissions from their operations. And then other companies um, may need to rely more heavily on estimates due to data or operational constraints. So all of those measurement methodologies are accepted, um, but companies should definitely disclose the methodology that they use, the sources of the emission factors that are used, and the inputs and assumptions that they use in any estimates. And then one more thing I wanted to just briefly touch on is that um, for scope two, there are actually two approaches to calculating emissions. So um, if you remember from our first environmental podcast, we explained that scope, scope two emissions are generated from the electricity that a company uses in its operations. So previously, companies were calculating scope two emissions solely by taking the usage, usually in kilowatt hours and multiplying by the average grid emission factor at that location or in that region. So because the grid averages don't take renewable energy purchasing decisions into account, uh, the only way to reduce emissions was to decrease their usage. Um, so as companies are broadening their uh, purchasing decisions to decrease their GHG emissions through renewable energy purchases, they can now calculate their scope two emissions using the market-based approach where they can essentially get credit for those per, uh, for purchasing electricity powered by renewable sources. Um, they just need to keep in mind that they can they should disclose the method used to calculate scope two emissions so they're comparable. Um, and it's important that to note that companies are uh, allowed to disclose scope two under one method or present both um, concurrently. What about companies that have certain targets or goals related to emissions? Can you talk about disclosures over those? Yeah, so a lot of companies have started to set and publicly disclose emissions goals. For example, many companies have set net zero emissions targets. I think we talked about that a little bit in a previous episode as well. There are organizations like the Science-Based Target Initiative helping companies set science-based goals specifically. Uh, and just by way of definition here, because it's important, science-based targets are those in line with what the latest climate science deems necessary to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, so important to understand that as well. Um, and it's, it's not really just emissions goals. Uh, companies have started to set goals beyond just emissions goals um, and more broadly have started to set climate related targets. Uh, so GHG is the most common, the one we hear the most about, um, but companies are also setting targets related to, and I know this isn't directly related to your question, I'm going to talk about other goals too, but um, companies are also setting targets related to energy use and water usage and, and other climate or environmental, in, in other climate or environmental related areas. And I'll come back to the SEC proposed climate rule because it's kind of top of mind. And uh, the proposed rule seeks to collect enhanced climate related information related to targets or goals um, as well, so that investors are better able to understand and evaluate the goals and targets companies have set. Um, so 
if registrants are setting climate-related goals, they would be required under the proposed rule uh, to disclose them and also provide certain information related to those goals. Um, so uh, the proposed rule lays out a list of items that would be required to be disclosed. Um, so it's things like uh, the scope of activities and and emissions included in the target, uh, the unit of measure, uh, including whether the target is absolute or intensity-based, uh, the defined time horizon by which the target is intended to be achieved, and whether the time horizon is consistent with one or more goals established uh, by a climate-related treaty, um, regulation policy, those sorts of things. Another item listed uh, in the proposed rule is uh, disclosure of the defined baseline time period and baseline emission emissions against which progress will be tracked um, with a consistent base year for multiple targets, any interim targets set by the registrant, and then finally, uh, how the registrant intends to meet its climate-related target or goals. So a number of different requirements associated with targets laid out in the SEC's proposed rule. Uh, and if we look even beyond uh, the SEC's proposed rule, other frameworks also provide guidance um, as it relates to setting targets and goals. So for instance, uh, GRI requires that when a reporting entity uh, reports on GHG emission targets, uh, that they explain whether offsets were used to meet those targets, including the type of offset, the uh, scheme on which the offsets are a part, um, things like that. And so a number of different requirements there as well. So you kind of alluded to this earlier. We spent a lot of today talking about the emission side of things. Um, and that makes sense because it's a, a key focus in the proposed SEC rule into investors in general, but maybe as we kind of wrap up our discussion on environmental factors, each of you could hit on the non-emission side uh, related to climate environmental matters. Sure, I'll go first here if Caroline's okay with that. Um, so uh, one common area of focus outside of emissions uh, is water. Uh, so when you think about water, it's as it relates to ESG specifically, uh, we're talking about things like water withdrawal uh, and water usage and uh, water discharged. Uh, so there's, of course, quantification um, of these areas required by, by various standards. But beyond that, um, disclosure, such as, disclosure frameworks such as GRIs also require disclosure and discussion around how and where companies are interacting with water in various ways. So they want to understand how business activities are contributing to water-related impacts and including discussion of those sorts of things in a company's disclosure around water. Um, they want to understand... Uh, in addition to that, how companies, how organizations are working to address water-related impacts that they're having through their business operations. Uh, and as mentioned previously, uh, when we were talking about the different standards, so SASB takes a sector or industry-specific approach. Um, and so just kind of giving another example of, of water-related disclosure, if we look at the real estate industry and the real estate industry guidance provided by SASB, just as an example, uh, Specific there, there's requirements around a disclosure of the amount of water uh, in thousands of cubic meters that are withdrawn um, by portfolio assets um, that a real estate company might hold. And so just mention that by way of example, just to kind of help crystallize in, in our audience's minds 
you know, how SASB would apply, you know, given its industry-specific approach. And then similar to GRI, SASB also focuses on some of those kind of qualitative discussions around water-related risk and strategies to mitigate those risks. And so you can kind of see how there's um, different focuses, but they're still covering a lot of the same types of things, the same themes. Again, that was an example from the the real estate SASB guidance, um, but certain other industries covered by SASB also include similar water-related disclosures, but again, uh, tailored for their specific industries. Um, I can quickly touch on waste. So waste generated in operations is actually... It's actually part of scope three GHG inventory from an emissions perspective, but there are some additional waste disclosures that are non-emissions related that companies um, should also consider. So waste accounts for uh, the disposal and treatment of waste generated in the company's operations in the reporting year. So some examples would include disposal in a landfill or composting or incineration, or recovery for recycling. So if if a company is reporting on waste data under GRI standards, they should disclose the total weight of waste generated in metric tons. And this sounds simple enough, but when you start thinking of each type of material that could have a different weight or a different unit of measure, uh, it can quickly become a larger undertaking to get accurate and reliable waste data. Under GRI, companies should also separately disclose the amount of waste in metric tons that was diverted from disposal to show how much of the waste generated was directed to recovery for recycling or prepared for reuse rather than sent to a landfill or incinerated. Another required disclosure related to waste is the breakout of hazardous and non-hazardous waste generated. And then just as a final note, kind of to bring it back to the emissions piece, um, waste emissions calculations can also get complicated because each material type and disposal type have a different emission factor. Um, So for example, disposing of mixed plastic waste in a landfill produces different emissions than composting food waste. Wow. This is such a unique type of accounting. It's it's really (laughs) cool to see while it's cumbersome and there's so many details here, I think it's really cool to see this kind of corporate accountability and just want to thank Robbie and Caroline for their time um, and the work you've done on ESGs to to help make the world a better place. Like that's what this is doing. It's it's holding companies accountable and corporations really are the ones who have the biggest impact on our environment and on social and governance issues, which we'll touch on next episode. But I think this is a really exciting part of accounting. It's fun that it falls in our sphere. And I just really want to thank you guys for taking the time to be here, um, for sharing your knowledge on these topics. And I want to thank our listeners for following along and showing an interest in these matters. So matters. Thanks for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. You. Thanks. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.